morning. How's everybody doing today? I hope you all had a good 4th of July weekend. I know I did. I was up in Birmingham, uh, where I'm originally from, enjoying time with family and friends. I'm sure you guys did the same thing. Um, as Pastor Jim said there in the video, my name is Heath Wilson. I'm the family pastor over our Spanish Trail campus. This is actually my first time to be uh, with you all at Nine Mile on the Lord's Day. Uh, and so I'm very, very glad to be bringing the word of the Lord to you. We're gonna be looking at the book of Joel. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to that small, short book in the Old Testament, the book of Joel. Uh, to our Spanish trail folks over there, uh, I miss you guys. I'm not sure you miss me quite as much as I miss you, uh, but I'll, I'll, I'm, I'm glad you're with us and, uh, and I hope that this message is a blessing to you. Uh, I'll see you Wednesday, uh, if not next Sunday. Uh, for those of you who are joining online, I wanna thank you for carving out a little bit of your time this morning uh, to be with us, to worship with the Hillcrest family uh, through song and through the, the reading and, uh, and study of God's word. And so my prayer for all of us, whether it's here at Nine Mile or whether it's uh, at Spanish Trail or online, is that we all look intently at God's word uh, and we find how we can uh, be different because of what it commands us to do. Um, so today, we're gonna to be in our second sermon, uh, second Sunday in the sermon series, The Summer in the Minors. Now, I didn't entitle the series Summer in the Minors. That was something that Pastor Jim thought did, and I, I don't know if it's because we're going through the Minor Prophets or if that was some kind of sly dig at his pastoral bullpen uh, that we're minor league in quality uh, versus major league. I'm not sure what he meant by that. I'll let you talk with him, uh, but nonetheless, I'm excited to be here uh, and this morning, what we're gonna be looking at the book of Joel, and I really wanna do three things. We have three objectives for today. The first thing is I wanna look at the structure or the layout of the book of Joel. A lot of times when we go and we try to understand a book of the Bible, knowing the structure and the layout can really aid us and help us in trying to determine what the book actually means and what it is calling us to do as God's people. The second thing I wanna do is I wanna look at the major theological theme uh, in the book of Joel, which will then lead us into the third uh, thing that I would like to do, which is exposit or explain a portion of scripture, uh, three or four, three verses there in chapter two. All right, so three objectives, and I've got about 30, 35 minutes to do it. Uh, my watch is broken today, so if I keep you a little long, keep your tomatoes in your pockets. Don't throw them at me, please. So the structure of the book of Joel. The book of Joel actually is a short book. There's only three chapters you can see there uh, in your copy of God's word. And each chapter deals with a certain movement or a certain main section of the book of Joel. And so in each section, uh, you're gonna see a common theme. You're going to see a judgment oracle. And I think we have something on the screen. A judgment oracle. So you're gonna see that in chapter one. Now, what's a judgment oracle? Well, it, it, in essence, it's a poem that God communicates to his prophet to then communicate to those who need to hear it. Uh, it's written in poetry, so a lot of times that's why it's difficult to understand. I've been talking to a lot of people over the last couple of weeks uh, as we've prepared to go through this series in the Minor Prophets. And what people have told me is that it's very difficult to understand the Minor Prophets. Uh, when I get there, I usually skip over, go to the New Testament where it's a little bit easier to understand. And in large part, that's due because it's written in poetry. Now, unless you are you know, an artist or something like that, you probably don't understand poetry as easy as you do other types of literature, unless you're kind of a highfalutin type, 
like Dan Davis. Most of you over here at Nine Mile over at Spanish Trail, you definitely know Dan Davis. He's kind of a highfalutin type, so he understands poetry a lot better than I do, and so he's helped me out quite a bit. But that's what a judgment oracle is. It is poetry where God communicates a judgment that he either has sent or will send on the people who are receiving it. In chapter one, you see that in verse four. Read with me in Joel chapter one, verse four. It says, what the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. What the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. And so right there, you have a judgment that God sent on the nation of Israel, on his people. Then right after that, you're going to see a call to repentance. So in verses five, all the way down to the end of chapter one, you're gonna see several commands or imperatives, such as awake, lament, be ashamed, put on sackcloth, consecrate. These are all ideas related to repentance. God is calling his people to repent because he's brought a judgment upon them, presumably for a sin that they have committed. In chapter two, you're gonna see the same thing. You're gonna see a judgment oracle. The first 11 verses is that poem of judgment. God is sending judgment. Most likely, most, not all theologians agree, but most likely these two poems are talking about, are pointing to the same historical event that happened, namely that plague of locusts that came through and devastated Israel, Israel's economy. So you see that in verses one through 11, but then you get, again, the call to repent. And presumably, they do repent. And you get the blessing of God after they repent. And so you can see in verses 18 all the way through the end of chapter two, God blesses his people. And he blesses them in various ways. He blesses them with protection from other enemies, from, from other nations that would come and invade them, at least for a short while he does. You see the protection uh, uh, or the blessing of protection, but also of, uh, of, of material being, of wealth. He blesses them. He takes away through the locust, but then he blesses at their repentance with even more. And then in, verse, in chapter, uh, verses 28 all the way through the end of chapter two, you see God blessing them spiritually, which is also the same verse, verses 28 of chapter two, 28 through 32. That's the same exact verse that if you remember back to Acts, remember we spent, how long did we spend in Acts? Like seven years? Isn't that how long we spent in Acts? Something like that. I wasn't here, I was over at the mission field, but I think I went to the mission field and came back from the mission field and Hillcrest was still in the book of Acts. But nonetheless, that's the same exact message that Peter preached. He picks up this prophecy and it was fulfilled in the day of Pentecost in Acts 2 that God would pour out his spirit on all those who receive Christ. And so you see the judgment oracle, the call to repentance, and then the blessing. That all has to deal with the nation of Israel. In chapter three, things change. You only see an oracle of judgment. You only see chapter three talking about judgment, judgment, judgment upon not just the, not the nation of Israel, but all who would call upon God and rebel against him. All nations who would shake their fist at the Lord Almighty and say, I'm not gonna obey you. I'm going to disobey you. I'm not going to honor you. I'm going to set myself up as God. You're not God. And what is he gonna do? You can read there in chapter three. He's going to take them down into the valley of Jehoshaphat, which is the valley of decision. And there he's going to render judgment. He's going to mete out judgment for the decision they made to rebel against him. That's what is happening in chapter three. And so you see that is a reference to the day 
of the Lord, which leads us to the second objective that I want to accomplish today in talking about the major theological theme of the book of Joel, which is the day of the Lord. Everyone say it back, the day of the Lord. Oh, that was, oh, come on, guys. You guys got so many people here, and that was just, are some of you asleep? Come on, day of the Lord. There we go. That's what I'm talking about. Okay. Now, what comes to your mind when I mention day of the Lord? Now, if you're like me, you're automatically going to jump to the final book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, most likely chapters 19 and 20, and you're going to think of Armageddon. Not the movie with Will Smith and Bruce Willis, but the other Armageddon, right? You're gonna think of, of, of apocalypse. You're gonna think of the final days. You're gonna think of Jesus coming back from his throne on a white horse with a, with, a, with a sword as his tongue and he's gonna slay all of his enemies. And that is the day of the Lord. That is one reference to the day of the Lord. But here's what you have to understand if you're going to understand the minor prophets. That the day of the Lord is not just that period of time that is to come in the future. But the day of the Lord references any day when God intervenes into the natural order, how we just normally live out life, he intervenes in that to bring judgment upon rebellion. So, and you'll notice that, because the day of the Lord is, is talked about in past tense, as something that has already happened, which is the case in verse, chapters one and two of the book of Joel. In chapters three, God then looks for the final day of the Lord, or the big D day of the Lord is what I like to call it. You have the small D, day of the Lord, and the big D, day of the Lord. A good way to look at it is like this. Think of a mountain range, right? In a mountain range, you have a bunch of mountains, but then you have the big granddaddy of them all, right? You see the, the, the big mountain. And a lot of times, people talk about the mountain referring to the actual tallest peak in the set of mountains there. Or you can refer, using the same term, mountains, to the foothills, Am I right? And so they're all referring to mountains. It's the same way with the day of the Lord. You have small D days of the Lord that is leading up to the final big D day of the Lord when God will finally judge all evil and he will put everything back in order, what we just sang about a second ago. All right? So that's what it means to be, that's what, what the term day of the Lord means. Now, you might be sitting in your seat asking, what does that, do with, what does that have to do with me? Thank you for that theological definition of the day of the Lord. How does that impact my life? Well, the reality is this. You're sitting here in this room. You're over at Spanish Trail. You're listening online. All of us, including myself, we're sitting under judgment. God, on the day of the Lord, is going to mete out the just judgment for the sins that you and I and all of humanity have committed. We've said, no, God, you've given us this. You've given us this and this and this and this and this. But I'm going to shake my fist in your face and I'm going to do what I want to do. All of us are sitting under the judgment of God. And that's not a good thing. <laughs> that is not a good thing at all. Let me, let, let's read from the prophet Amos. So if you'll go over one book, over into Amos chapter five. Read with me in verses 18 through 20. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It's darkness and not light. As if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or he went into the house 
and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? This morning, I don't want you to run from the fact that all of us here are sitting under God's judgment. And when he meets that out, when he brings that judgment, you will not be able to stand under its weight. It will absolutely crush you. And there's no avoiding it. There's no getting away from it. There's no escaping it. All the sin, all the shame that it brings, it's gonna be hung around your neck as he comes with a sword to strike us down. I don't know if anyone's told you that before, but that's the reality that all the world, all humankind, that's their reality this morning. Unless. Unless. Unless you repent. What is repentance? Repentance in its, in its most basic form means this. It means to be going in one direction and to turn, to do an about face and to go in the opposite direction. You turn from dishonoring God, disobeying God, putting yourself up as God, and you turn toward God, serving God, loving God, obeying what he has called us to do. That's what repentance means in the most bare bones type of way. Now today, we're gonna learn what proper repentance is. We're gonna put a little meat on the bone. So if you will, join me in Joel chapter two for the third portion of today's sermon. And we're gonna expose it. We're gonna explain verses 12, 13, and 14 of Joel chapter two. Read along with me and I, as I read aloud. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning. Rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Lord, help the reality set heavy on our hearts this morning. That your day, the day of the Lord is coming. And God, the only way in which we will not have shed blood on that day is through proper repentance. Oh, Father, I pray that you would soften the hearts of those, maybe those who have come to church for years and years and years and have a hard heart towards you. Would you soften it today, God? May they repent. For those of us who are in you, who are your children, help us to repent, repent properly when we sin against you, Father. I pray these things in Christ's name, amen. So to prepare for the day of the Lord, I, I've entitled today's sermon, Preparing for the Day of the Lord, a, a Guide to Proper Repentance. What is proper repentance? Well, the first thing you're gonna notice from the text is that it is immediate. Look in verse 12. Yet even now, declares the Lord. Now. Repentance isn't something that you need to talk about with somebody before you do it. 
You don't need to gather a committee, take a democratic vote if you want to repent. You don't even need to talk to your spouse if you're married or a friend or a family member or a business partner or a roommate if you want to repent. Repentance, there's no room for waiting. It's to be done now. If you want to repent properly, you do it now. Why do you do it now? Well, the fact of the matter is this, as I I alluded to earlier, we all sit under the judgment of God. And, and many times, we hear the gospel, but we say, no, not now. I don't want to I don't, I, I don't repent now. I'll do it later. But that's what the fool says. Because you don't know if your life's going to be taken this very day. You don't know if God's going to part those skies and come back today, and your second chance is out of the door. Repentance is to be now it's to be immediate now some of you i think are going to go to argentina uh in november on a mission trip anyone going to argentina here i'm i'm going okay we got a couple here so we're taking a group to argentina uh and they speak spanish there for those of you who didn't know um and we've been gathering, or the team's been gathering the last couple of weeks to, to, to learn a little bit of Spanish. You know, if you're going to go to a country, might as well be able to get around a little bit. So, uh, and I, you know, I was in Spain for, for three years where they speak Spanish. Spain, Spain, by the way, is not just below Mexico for some of you who are geographically challenged. It's actually over in Western Europe. Uh, and my, my wife is, is Latina, so uh, we speak a lot of Spanish in the house. And so I've picked it up and, and I speak to my boys in Spanish. And there's a term we use that if we really want something to be done and done right now, what do we say? We say, yeah, right? If we have any Spanish speakers in the room, you just say, yeah. So I figured, why don't we just practice a little Spanish today? Let's practice. So say it with me. One, two, three. Yeah. All right. Yeah, there we go. Hey, that's it right there. Yeah. And if you really want to get it, if you really want to, you know, get your point across, you kind of got to get over here and you got to, Yeah. Kind of like you're smashing a cockroach, you ever, you know, yeah, like that. And so here's, here's usually how it goes down in my house. My son, Santiago, God bless his soul, three years old. The terrible twos are going into the terrible threes, and I'm hoping that they, they get over quickly. I feel sorry for the, for, for the preschool staff over there having to watch them right now. But anyway, I'll be sitting there doing something, you know, on my phone or cooking, cleaning. I'm, a, you know, big help around the house. And so... I'll say, Santi, pick up your toys. And then I'll go back to doing whatever I was doing over here. And then I'll look over about 20 seconds later, 30 seconds later. Maybe if you've got young kids, you can, you can sympathize with them. You look over, and there's nothing been picked up. So I say, Santi, pick up those toys. And I'll keep going, and then I'll look about again. And by that third time, oh, no, the yah's coming out. And I'll say, Santi, pick up those toys. Yeah. And I'll just smack my foot down on the, on, the, on, on the ground. Yeah, do it right now. I want you to do it now. The same way we in the Spanish language want to communicate something to be done immediately is the same way the text is calling you and me to repent now. You don't wait on it. Because if you wait, the day of the Lord might come and your second chance is gone. But you might say to me, well, Heath, I'm a believer. that is not going to be my reality on the day of the Lord. And I would say, yes, you're right. But if you're slow to repent, if you just kind of do it, you know, like that, I don't think you understand the severity and the effects of sin in your life. 
I was talking last week to the kids over at Spanish Trail, and I was explaining to them that sin isn't just something we do or we say, something that displeases God. It, it is that, but it's also much more. The Bible paints sin as a living being, right? Genesis 4, it's crouching at the door ready to devour you. Other biblical passages, they talk about sin being something inside of us that destroys us, that brings destruction. It's almost kind of like cancer. You know, my dad, about 10 years ago, he, he got diagnosed with cancer. And, and praise the Lord, they, they caught it early. It was, it was in his kidneys, so he got two of those. So they said, the cancer hasn't spread, so here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna cut out that kidney, we're gonna remove it, and then you're gonna be good to go. Now, when my, do- when, when my father's doctor said, here, I wanna see you back in about two weeks for the surgery, what do you think my dad did? Do you think he went home and said, well, hey, doc, hold on, let me go home, I gotta talk to my wife. You know, business is really busy these last couple, you know, these next couple of months, so can we just wait a, a second? I just wanna hold off, put this off for six or seven months till business is a little bit slower, life's not as busy. Do you think he did that? No, the guy took a pocket knife out of, his, out of his pocket and said, hey, just cut it out of me right now, doc. Let's get this thing out of here. Because he knew that that cancer in his body had the opportunity to spread if he didn't deal with it immediately. It's the same way when you sin against God and you don't repent, you don't make it right, you don't confess your sin and turn away from it and start following God. It's the same exact way. Repentance is immediate. My question is, do you repent immediately? I'll be honest with you. There's sometimes when I don't. In fact, I think the Lord, he was really getting after me this weekend. I told you I was up in Birmingham. My wife and I, one morning, we kind of got in a little spat, you know. I know you guys didn't think pastors and their wives got in spats, but we got in a little, you know, a little spat, you know, whatnot. And, uh, and so then, a couple of minutes later, we had to get in the car. And you know how the car rides go after you've gotten in a fight with your spouse. She's kind of sitting over here, in the sp- over here in the passenger side. She's looking at the window, doesn't want to look at me. I'm sitting over here. I'm kind of looking out this way, just thinking, oh, you, know, she's, you know, that woman you gave me, God, kind of like Adam did. And, uh, and the Holy Spirit came and he convicted me. He said, Heath, you didn't talk to your wife the way I commanded you to talk to your wife. You've offended me and you've offended her. Repent now. And I thought, oh God, come on, that's not fair. You know I'm studying this passage on repentance immediately and you're gonna ask me to repent immediately? That's not fair. Praise the Lord. I got it right. I swallowed my pride. I confessed to the Lord. I'm, I shouldn't have done that. I, I'm not gonna talk to her that way. I confessed to her. Hey, babe, I'm not gonna talk to you that way anymore. I'm sorry. Repentance is to be immediate. But it's not only to be immediate, it's also to be wholehearted. Repentance is to be wholehearted. Notice with me in verses 12 and 13, the first two imperatives, there's three commands, three imperatives in this passage of scripture. The first two, return and rend, all have a nuance concerning the heart. Return to me, what's the prepositional phrase? With all your heart. Rend what? your hearts and not your garment. The heart is the locus of your will, of your motivation. In biblical counseling circles, we say this. We say, you do what you do because you want what you want. And what determines what you want? 
your heart. Your heart determines what you want. And so the idea here is when you repent, you don't do it straight on a fence. Someone shouldn't look at you and say, is that guy, is that gal, are they repentant or not? I can't really tell. That's not wholehearted repentance. If you're going to repent properly before the Lord, you do it with all your heart. A couple of weeks ago, well, it was probably a couple months by now, I was sitting over in my office at Spanish Trail, and, um, you know, we have a five-day-a-week five, uh, daycare over at Spanish Trail, and so I go out there with the kids about once every two weeks, and I do a little chapel lesson for them. Just dance around, have fun, uh, share a little bit of God's Word with them. And, and this particular week, uh, little Timmy wasn't behaving very properly, so... Uh, I had to ask little Timmy to go to the side. I removed him from the group uh, kind of as a punishment. And we ended. I went back to my office to keep working. And about an hour or so later, the director of the daycare, Miss Phyllis Hennett, she, she comes in uh, with little Timmy. And apparently she found out that little Timmy was misbehaving during chapel. And so because of that, uh, she said, hey, hey, Pastor Heath, little Timmy has something to tell you. I said, okay, great. What's up, little Timmy? And he just stared at me. And he looked back at Phyllis, looked back at me, and then Phyllis kind of, hey, Timmy, don't you have something to tell, Pastor Heath? Same thing. Look at me, look at Phyllis. And we, we did this for about a minute and a half. I mean, it was quite awkward to, to, to tell you the truth. I just wanted to say, Phyllis, just forget about it. Okay, it's not that big of a deal. But eventually, I thought she, I thought she was going to have to smack him in the back of the head just so the words would fall out of his mouth. But he finally mustered up the courage and, and, and swallowed his pride and said, uh, 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 I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Now, I love little Timmy, but do you think little Timmy was repentant at that time? No, of course not. He wasn't repenting out of a broken heart. He was repenting out of force. He was being obligated to do it. We repent like that sometimes. We don't really want to do it. We know we probably should. Oh, okay, I'll do it. That's our, that's our disposition. And it's not just our disposition. If you look with me in Jeremiah, well, you don't have to turn there, but Jeremiah 3, verse 10. God had already dealt with the, the nation of Israel with this problem. The Lord says, yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with her whole heart, but in pretense. So the southern kingdom had already had issues with this, with this problem of half-hearted Repentance. God says, no, that's not gonna fly with me. If you wanna repent, you do it not to save your skin. You do it not to, not to, 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 to appease me kind of in some uh, empty, motionless way. You repent with your whole heart. There was a man that came in my office as, a, a couple months as well, different time than Timmy, a grown man. I was on my way to work. I get a call from the, the administrative assistant over at Spanish Trail. Hey, Heath, there's a guy here he wants to, to speak to pastor. I was about five minutes away, so I, boom, I zoom in to work, come in, come into the office, and he's sitting there in the chair. And usually, you know, when someone enters into a room, you kind of hear them, and you kind of lift your head up. Not this guy. His head was buried in his hoodie. And I walked over to him, and I stuck out my hand, Hey, sir, my name's Heath. Nice to meet you. He barely shook out his hand. I said, come on back to my office. Let's talk. 
So we walked back into my office, and for 20 minutes, the man didn't look up. He was sobbing, sobbing, drenching his clothes in tears. Now I would ask him a question, but he would just kind of mumble some words. But every so often, he would cry out to the Lord, I'm sorry, forgive me, God. The man was broken. He knew what he had done, and he knew who he offended, and he could barely lift his eyes up to look. In that moment, he was rending his heart and his garment. That's what God calls for in proper repentance. A rent heart, not just a rent garment. The rent garment is an ancient, uh, an ancient practice where the rending, where the ripping of the clothes is the evidence of a brokenness in your heart. You can't demonstrate that by breaking your heart, obviously, so you rip your clothes in mourning. And that's the idea here. You've so offended a holy God who's done so much for you. You offended him, you disobeyed him, you shook your hand in his face. And you realize that and you're broken over it and so you rip your your garment, you rip your clothes. But that had become a motionless act, an outward act, void of any inward change or emotion. And so that's why God says, don't rip your garments, rip your heart. Because that's what I want. I'm sick of you ripping your garments. Rend your heart to me and then we can talk. If you're gonna properly repent, you've got to rend your heart. You've got to do it wholeheartedly. So does your repentance look more like Timmy that came in my office or does it look more like that man who came in my office? Maybe you've never repented before. This is, maybe you've sat in church your whole life. Maybe you've never been in a church and you just wanna come and understand what Christianity is all about. Maybe you're just passing through on vacation and you said, hey, I'm gonna go to that big church right there on the side of the road. Maybe you've walked with the Lord for years. What does your repentance look like? Does it look like Timmy or does it look like that man? Because if it looks like Timmy, you're doing it wrong. And God knows. (laughs) He can see right through you. Repentance must be wholehearted if it's gonna be done properly. And when you throw yourself on God's mercy, like that man did, when you call out to him saying, God, I'm sorry, forgive me. I've broken your laws. I've broken your ways. Forgive me. You're gonna get to the third point, which is proper repentance is predicated on God's character. Until you understand who God is, as revealed in his word, you're not going to be able to be properly repentant. So what's God's character? Up to this point in the book of Joel, I mean, God's character has been pretty harsh, right? I mean, let's just be honest here. Let's just take the church mask off. God's been harsh up to this point. He's sending locusts across, across the land, destroying everything. He's upturning economies. He's upturning nations. He's he's talking about bringing a sword, taking him down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. God's not pictured as a kind God at this moment because we're seeing the side that is his justice. But here we see a different side of God. We see the other side of his character. Look with me in verse 13. 
It says, return to the Lord, what does it say? Your God. Your God. So we see God's character. We first we see that he's your God. He's a personal God. The term, the Lord here is the divine name, Yahweh. And that's the covenant name that God gave to his people when he made a covenant with him. He was going to protect them, look after them, provide for them. They were going to serve him and love him and obey him. And they were going to be a light to the nations. And Joel's reminding them, that's who God is. He's your God. He's not an impersonal, an impersonal God. He knows you. He's not a distant God, far off. He's right there in your face. Because he wants to be. If you're in the new covenant that was instituted when Christ came to earth, he died on the cross, was buried, and then rose again, if you have believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ, if you've repented from your sins, you're part of the new covenant. And and the new covenant, you have an adoptive father. In the new covenant, you have a new heart. You're in God's family. He loves you. He is your God. That's our God. He's your God. He's close to you. What else is he? He's merciful. He's gracious. He doesn't, he gives you what you don't deserve. You don't deserve his kindness and forgiveness. Be very careful if you ever think, if you're at a point where you think, oh, I deserve forgiveness. No, no, no. He's gracious. He doesn't deal with you based off fairness. He deals with you based off grace. He gives you what you don't deserve. He's merciful. He doesn't give you what you do deserve. Eternal punishment. Exile. No, he, he pulls you in tight. He's merciful. He's slow to anger. That's, this, this, this characteristic of God has taken a new life and a new form in my life uh, with my children because I'm quick to anger with my child. It's so easy to be quick to anger, but God isn't. He's slow to anger. What does it say in the book of Ezekiel? You don't have to turn there, but Ezekiel 33, 11 says this. As I live, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. For why will you die, O house of Israel? In the same vein, 2 Peter 3, 9 says this. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. Some count slowness but he's patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but all should reach repentance. Why does God hold off his return? Why does he stay back the day of the Lord? So you repent. So I repent. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love. Now I love this term. It's the Hebrew term chesed. And if, you, if you've studied this term, you've probably studied it in the context of the book of Ruth. Boaz, showing chesed, showing love to Ruth. It's a beautiful term. Loyalty, kindness, care, love. That's our God to us. He shows us steadfast love. And he, he relents. He relents over disaster. He doesn't make a decree and say, that's set in stone. No, he says, repent, repent. Just like they did, what, what did we get done studying with Pastor Jim, the book of Jonah? And what did Nineveh do? They repented. And what did he do? He said, okay, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna judge you. 
I'm not going to judge you. He's slow to anger. He relents over disaster. And then ending the passage, he says in verse 14, who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. This, is, this puzzled me um, for the, when the first time I read it and I, I had to think about it. What's he saying here? Is God, if I repent properly, is God still not going to forgive me? What's the situation here? And it reminded me uh, back of my, my old kind of theological beliefs. Uh, when, I, when I was growing up, I grew up in a church in a very, in a very church context. Uh, my parents, faithful followers of the Lord, they raised me going to church. And so I heard, God will forgive you. God will forgive you. God will forgive you so much that in my mind, in this warped way, I, I, I transitioned from God will forgive you to God is obligated to forgive you. His will got confused with his obligation. And so then I live my life that way. I can do whatever the heck I want because God's obligated to forgive me. In that sense, I'm God and he's serving me. That's a bad theology, by the way. That is not a good theology. I think that's why it's in the, in, in the passage. Because God is not obligated in our theological constructs. We've, we've heard this term, don't put God in a box. God can do whatever he wants to do. He's not obligated to forgive you nor me, but he does. This is the same question in Lamentations. Have you ever, we all know Lamentations because it's the book uh, where it talks about God's new mercies every day. And that's a great passage, but we need to read the rest of the book where Jerusalem is burning in ashes because it's just been exiled. And Jeremiah the prophet is sitting amongst all this ashes and he's lamenting, he's weeping at his beloved Jerusalem that's been destroyed. And he ends the book and it's almost in a bone-chilling way that he ends the book. Restore yourselves, restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days of old. And here's the kicker. Unless you have utterly rejected us and you remain exceedingly angry with us. And then it ends. God, restore us. We've messed up. Restore us. Unless it's too late. Unless it's too late. Can I tell you some good news this morning? If you're sitting here this morning, if you're listening to me over at Spanish Trail, it's not too late. It's not too late. Don't run toward eternal damnation when God is calling you to repent. Because now you can save yourself from the horrible darkness of the day of the Lord. Romans 10 says it like this. Romans 10, 9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, what you will be saved. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You can be saved today. It's not too late for you. And so today, that's the conclusion. That's the application. If you're here today, you've hardened your heart to God. If you've got a neck of iron and you're not willing to turn, 
today's your day. And if you spurn today, you may not have another day. You may not have a second chance. Today, you can be in God's family. Christ came, God came. He lived a perfect life and he died. He received the punishment that you deserve on the day of the Lord. He received it in himself, God punishing the son for sin in the body of Christ. He died three days in the grave and then rose up. Defeated sin, defeated death and he wants to attribute all of his perfection on you and take away all of your guilt. It's called the, the, the theology of justification. He wants that for you and you and you and me this morning. But you gotta confess that Jesus is Lord. You gotta believe in your heart. So today, if that's you, repent. You don't have to die. You don't have to sit under the judgment of God. Repent. And, and maybe you're here and you're a Christian. You have repented. But you don't properly repent. Christianity starts with repentance, but then it's a lifestyle of repentance. If you're not repenting on a daily basis, it's probably because you don't understand that you're sinning. Most people think, oh, I don't have to repent because I'm doing well. No, 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 no. That is most likely not the case. You're not repenting because you're not understanding your sin before God. You're not properly repenting. So if you have not repented well in the past, today's your day to repent of not repenting and to start a new journey. When you can repent immediately, you can repent wholeheartedly and you can repent predicated on God's character. This is God's word and let all who agree say amen.